views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show is pre-recorded. Everyday Wealth is produced and created by Edelman Financial Engines and hosted by Gene Chatsky. Ms. Chatsky is not an employee or client of the firm. She receives fixed cash compensation as host and for related activities, and therefore has an incentive to endorse Edelman Financial Engines and its planners. For additional information, please see www.edelmanfinancialengines.com slash everydaywealth. The 2022 Top 100 Independent Advisory Firm ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative, including assets managed by the firm, technology spending, staff diversity, succession planning, and other metrics. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Compensation is paid for use and distribution of rating. Awarded September 2022 based on data within a 12-month period. Investor experience and returns are not considered. At the intersection of life and money, this is Edelman Financial Engine's Everyday Wealth with personal finance expert, Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky. Hey, everybody. I'm Gene Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Everyday Wealth. One of the great things, the best things about a show like this is that we get a lot of feedback from people like you, from our listeners. We get a lot of questions. And so what we thought we'd do today is dip into our digital mailbag and devote a full show, the entire thing, to just answering those questions that you have set in. And in order to do that, we have assembled the full team. Isabel Barrow and Andy Smith, both of whom are wealth planners at Edelman Financial Engines, are in the house. Nice to see you both. Great to be here. Excited about this. All right. So this should be fun. Just a reminder for all of you listening, this is not the last time that we will answer questions. So if you've got one, you can go to everydaywealth.com, scroll down to the box that says, ask the host, type in your question, send it our way. Also, Coming up on Tuesday, October 10th, Edelman Financial Engines will be hosting a webinar entitled Healthcare in Retirement, which will feature a live Q&A. You can go to efewebinar.com to register for that. And as always, you can pick up the phone and dial 1-833-PLAN-EFE to connect with a planner on any questions that you might have. Okay. Let's jump in. We did a little coin flip before we started. Isabel, you won. So the first question goes to you. Great. I'm ready. Our listener, Larry, sent us an email in which he says, I'm concerned that if I pass away before my wife, she will be taxed as a single person and that this could cause her tax rate to jump one or even two brackets. Are there any tax efficient financial planning strategies, perhaps like a Roth IRA, that could be used in this situation? Well, first of all, Larry, good job for starting to think ahead um, about your future and your family and what happens when you're gone. You know, it's not always easy to start from that perspective, but I think you're doing the right things and thinking ahead. One of the things that I I kind of am inferring from this is that Larry is the decision maker in the family in regard to their money. So what that potentially means is that, you know, Larry's wife could be in a situation where if he's gone, she's having to now decide, what do I do? How do I handle these investments? What is my tax situation? What are the different strategies that I need to use? So, you know, that may be a reason 
reason for Larry to start talking to his wife about working with a financial planner, working with a CPA or an accountant, um, either before uh, he's gone, ideally, or after, and kind of teeing that up. But the bottom line, though, is, and I, I say this often, don't let the tax tail wag the investment dog, right? And so what I mean by that is taxes are important. But investment strategy is more important. So in thinking about how to best protect his wife, yes, taxes matter, but they may not matter as much as the overall strategy and thinking about how she's going to have income. How are all of these different pieces of her financial plan going to work? That being said, there are some strategies that are more tax efficient than others. You know, there are some types of investment vehicles that are more tax efficient than others. So, you know, I would think that again, one of the things that Larry wants to think about first is overall investment strategy. But the next thing he can think about is maybe asset location, you know, Mm -hmm. having the right types of investments and the right types of accounts. There are certain investments like high yield bonds, for example, that are really tax inefficient. And so Larry might be thinking about having those types of investments inside tax deferred accounts like IRAs, 401ks, et cetera. You know, Larry might also want to think about Roth IRAs. He might think about doing some Roth conversions during periods of time where they have lower income. You know, if he's retired and they don't have Social Security coming in, for example, yet, there might be uh, some, you know, periods of time in their lives where they're in a lower tax bracket. Roth conversions might make a lot of sense. All of this being said, yes, you can manage around tax efficiency, but it's really important to also understand that there are a lot of assumptions that go into trying to strategize for taxes when we're talking 10 and 20, 30 years ahead of time. So think about utilizing software, think about running some projections, but don't get so caught up in just worrying about the tax strategy that you're missing the bigger picture, which is let's think about how her overall investment strategy is going to work when you're gone. And let's think about how to make sure that she's involved at least enough so that she won't be lost if something does happen to him. That's incredibly important. Anything to add? Yeah, I think there's, so there's, um, what Isabel was talking about was kind of the the in life, where do we put money? Uh, where do we locate the dollars, you know, et cetera. I think that there's, the other thing that you can look at is this idea of tax efficient distributions, mm-hmm. right? The colloquial term of this, the nice way to say that is, you know, where am I pulling my money and when am I doing that? So you've got pre-tax IRAs, you've got brokerage accounts, you've got Roth IRAs, you've got trusts, all these different things together. When you're looking at kind of any sort of tax efficient planning strategy, it's not just always where it goes and what it's actually in. It's where you're going to pull the money out from, because realize that you may not always save money during your lifetime. You may put your heirs, put other people in a situation where they're going to be, you know, saving potentially, you know, some tax dollars. But I I totally agree with Isabel. Do not let the tax tail wag the dog here when it comes to anything that you're doing with your investments. Okay, sounds good. Andy, got one for you to start with. This one's from John. It's about life insurance. He says, I plan to retire next year and I can fund my retirement. My wife and I have no debt or mortgage. My wife will receive half of my social security benefits if I pass away. She'll also have a pension and other assets for retirement and is financially secure if on her own. We have one daughter, but she's grown and also on her own. 
I have a life insurance policy that pays four times my current salary. And my question is, do I still need it? Great question. Great question. Um, so I'll kind of approach this in, in two different ways. One way is, do you need it? Likely no. And it's because the purpose of life insurance is going to change over your lifetime. When you're young and first married, when you then have kids in the mix, when you're in your peak earning years and your peak debt years, as you're gliding into retirement, as you are in retirement itself, you have a different purpose for that policy, right? So term life insurance, it's always been this great way, cheap way to insure. The problem is as you age, it gets more expensive. So you're looking at this potentially huge premium, you know, burden here. And you're thinking, why in the hell do I need this because of this and this and this? What I tell people is this, if you have no debt, right, you likely don't need to insure. If, especially if the kids are launched, especially if you have good mailbox money with social security and pensions, and you've got this income stream kind of dialed in with your investments, if you have assets for the surviving spouse. If you have debt, I encourage people to consider insuring to the amount of debt that you still have. Because when you pass, the last thing that you want your survivor to deal with, in addition to losing you and all the other kind of machinations that have to be worked through, is that, okay, what do I do with this debt, right? Um, the other reason or the other instance where I like people to consider um, continuing some form of life insurance is if you have children with different needs. So maybe if you have a special needs child, that's going to be funded differently, right? And there's trusts and different assets and ABLE accounts and all those things. But if you have different kids with different life situations, right? One is kind of the absolute star and the other one is, you know, heating up hot dogs in an air fryer and that's a good meal, <laughs> right? That's, you know, then you want to kind of separate the different assets. So for your particular situation, what he's talking through, probably not. But there's a heavy use of the asterisk there. You have to consider kind of why you would want to consider keeping that, especially out of some sort of group term life insurance situation. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree in general with what he's laid out here. It, it doesn't sound like there's a really compelling reason to maintain that insurance policy. However, there are a couple things that could, you know, maybe someone's situation is not identical to this, but similar. And one of the things that, that kind of popped out here is that it sounds like this might be a workplace plan because he's mm -hmm. talking about how it's a multiplier of his income and he's retiring in a year. So my question is then, what's the trade-off? You know, how much is it going to cost for him to just maintain it until he retires versus what he would be eligible for? So there is a risk there in dropping it before he retires, potentially. And then the other thing is that, you know, for some people, their spouse is going to be okay, but they're not going to be in great situation. Like maybe they're, you know, you're going to get a portion of social security and a portion of the pension, but their income is going to drop a lot. So there are some for whom I would say, you know, even if your spouse is going to be okay, you really need to run a much more comprehensive analysis to figure out whether or not it makes sense to pay that premium just to offset that risk for your spouse for another five or 10 potential years. So life insurance is, there's kind of a lot of gray area there. Yeah. And I think you also need to bring your spouse into the conversation and make sure that they're comfortable with the idea of you dropping that insurance policy. Very, very good point. We've got another question. This one comes from Paul. He's asking about trusts. And 
he says, as a single person with no dependents, I was thinking about how to set up a trust to leave to my nieces and nephews. My question is about how to choose the trust administrator. Are there commercial or private trust companies that will manage the trust and the investments, pay the taxes, distribute funds, etc.? Yes, is the short answer. But should you use it is a much longer answer. So yes, there are trust companies out there that will provide all of those services. They are called corporate trustees. And many different companies have that offering. You can even have a company who will act as your executor, you know, and take care of all of that stuff after your passing. However, the complexity is in the fiduciary duty that that trust officer has and that trust company has and how detailed your trust needs to be if you're going to leave a corporate trustee as the trustee or executor. And what I mean by that is if you have a family member or a friend who is your trustee for the benefit of your nieces and nephews, maybe one of their parents, for example, they can use or or they understand you, what you're asking for. You can have a conversation with them ahead of time and say, this is what I mean by all of this. And so they can somewhat interpret the trust based on what they understand your wishes to be. In the form of a corporate trustee, they are going to stick to the letter of the law. And if you haven't laid out a lot of different potential scenarios, that can make it a little bit trickier for the beneficiaries if it is not a specifically outlined use of the fund for example. Um, With all that being said, it comes up all the time that you may not have the right person to serve in this capacity. You know, if you don't have someone that you absolutely trust, or or really you say, I don't want to burden someone with this responsibility, then a corporate trustee is a great option. And they can even just be a, a company that will step in when you're gone. So there's not even really any compensation arrangement that you have to set up now. It's more that you are setting this up for the future. When you're gone, you have chosen this corporate trustee. I, I've been hearing from a lot of single people who want to know about setting setting up professionals to care for them. Yeah, that's what I was going to talk about. So the professional fiduciary, um, we've had to kind of start to incorporate a couple um, just over the years that we've been doing this with different clients. Had one client, loved her dearly, known her for years. She wanted us to be the trustee. She wanted us to be, so we can't. Right. Right. Um, And, you know, banks are great. The corporate trustees or the corporate trusts are great, but they're not the only option. So what these professional fiduciaries do is they are professional fiduciaries. They are legally obligated to do what is in your best interest based on kind of lots of sets of instructions, the trust, the other instructions that you put in place, the estate, working with attorneys, everything else. My big suggestion to people is talk with everybody right now, right? You're on this side of the dirt. You're healthy. <laughs> you know, you're making it work. You know, Where plan now. I don't know. Stuff. It's just seriously. Right. <laughs> um, but, you know, all this stuff is going to come at you out of the blue. You have to be able to prepare. So if you can have conversations now and, you know, ruffle some feathers, people can go away, come back, talk and think about things. All of a sudden, you're not in the situation where you have to come up with all of these magical answers, you know, two minutes, you know, before the deadline. All right. Next question. This is from Sonia. She says, my question is about inherited IRAs and tax implications. From what I've read, inherited IRA distributions are treated like income so they could increase the beneficiary's tax bracket. Can IRAs be left to grandchildren to avoid paying some of these taxes? Presumably, grandchildren are in a lower tax bracket than their parents. 
am I missing something? I, I mean, I, I guess it depends on the age of the grandchildren when they inherit this IRA. But Andy, what do you think? No, absolutely. That's, as, that's actually the thing. So real quick, remember, IRAs give you the ability to specify beneficiaries. These human beings sometimes trusts, um, but these beneficiaries can either be primary or contingent, right? Who gets it if you pass, if that beneficiary is gone, who gets it in their place, right? So these people are going to receive your assets upon your demise. Initially, they receive the money tax-free, but depending upon the type of beneficiary they are, there are different withdrawal requirements, okay? So if you're a spousal beneficiary, you basically can treat the asset as your own, and that is important for whatever your required minimum distribution timeline is. If you are a non-spouse beneficiary, you still get the money tax-free, but now you have a 10-year time window within which you have to drain the account. No one is going to avoid paying taxes when it comes to receiving money in the, you know, from a traditional IRA. Uncle Sam's going to get his pound of flesh one way or the other. It's just when you're going to do that. So what you need to consider is who receives the money and when they're going to receive it. So what you're talking about with these natural timelines, when you pass – you're likely in your 80s or 90s, okay? We're dealing with averages, right? There's 107s and 51s and all between. But when you pass, you're in this age where your kid is likely to be near retirement. So what you were talking about before with Roth conversions, depending upon when you need to take money out of these non-spouse, you know, inherited IRAs, you can kind of time when you want to take money and it's going to be a taxable event, Okay, so you may wait to take the withdrawals until you're in a low earning year or you you retire and you don't claim Social Security yet and then you take the money out. Now, when you talk about grandkids, now you're looking at another timeline. Okay, so if you're 80s or 90s, your kids are 60s, 70s, your grandkids are 40s. You know, I mean, it could be a lot of different things. So when you pass, your grandkids are likely to be young. Okay. So you're dealing with low income or no income years. They still have to withdraw the money, but they don't have to do something with it. They just have to physically break that seal, take it out of the IRA. They can still invest it within a brokerage account and invest it tax efficiently and look at asset location, which you were talking about before. So yes, you can. I think the idea here is that you want to have a plan in place where you're working with your advisor and your CPA so that everybody kind of knows what the different timelines are, where your kids' tax brackets are, where your grandkids' tax brackets are, and then you can plan accordingly. The idea, too, is that just because they receive it doesn't mean they have to take it immediately, right? It's that 10-year non-spousal window within which they can start taking those dollars. Right. But bottom line is, if it's a non-Roth IRA, whoever receives it from you You're paying tax. is going to pay taxes at whatever tax bracket they're in now, plus whatever that distribution from the IRA is going to do to their tax bracket. Right. And so, you know, I think the complexity is in if you're leaving it to, let's say, minors, right? If you leave money to a minor, legally speaking, they can't actually inherit that money from you, right? They have to be 18 or older, whatever the age of majority is in whatever state they live, in order to receive that money outright. So, if they receive money from you as a minor, if your grandchild is, is again, under that age of majority, then the IRA account is going to end up being, um, you know, they're going to be considered what's called an eligible designated beneficiary, and they're going to maybe get a little bit of a longer window on the distribution, but 
someone else is going to be named as the custodian. And there may be taxes if they're taking distributions that it's going to be taxed at the custodian's level, depending on how old the minor is. So there are some complexities there if you're leaving it to a minor child that you should definitely be aware of. Complicated, complicated. And just to throw one additional wrinkle into things, I mean, do you want to try to put that money in trust in some way if you're talking about minors or when it comes to IRAs, that's not a strategy that works? It depends on the type of the trust, right? So in some cases, you want to avoid using like an irrevocable trust, for example, as a beneficiary of an IRA, because that IRA may have to pay out immediately to the trust instead of getting this 10-year window that it would otherwise have. Um, so it depends on a lot of factors, but it mostly depends on what type of trust it would be. In this case, for a minor, I think you know that may add a layer of complexity. I mean, it really depends on your overall estate plan if you're going to try to use a trust as the beneficiary of your IRA for your minor grandchildren. Next question um, is the type that I think pretty much everyone planning for retirement has or should have on their mind. Kevin says, between my wife and me, we have about $2 million in investable assets. What are some strategies that could help turn that into a reliable income stream in retirement, or as Andy likes to call it, because I've been listening, mailbox money. (laughs) But before we get to that answer, we've got to take a quick break. So stick with us. We will be right back. Are you worried about the current volatility of the market, inflation rates, talk of a recession? Are you second guessing your investment decisions? What better time than now to ensure your finances are moving forward than by getting an expert second opinion from an Edelman Financial Engines planner? Whether you already have a planner or simply need a new perspective, they can help you manage your wealth plan to both weather the volatility of the market today and help you protect and preserve it over the long term. To schedule your complimentary wealth checkup today, call 833-PLAN-EFE. That's 833-752-6333. Or visit their website at efewealthplanners.com. Put your uncertainties to rest once and for all. Schedule your complimentary wealth checkup right now. Okay, before the break, we left you with a bit of a cliffhanger on a question sent in by our listener, Kevin. By the way, if you've got a question, you can go to everydaywealth.com, scroll down to the box that says, ask the host, type in your question, send it our way. Also, just a reminder, coming up on Tuesday, October 10th, Edelman Financial Engines will be hosting a webinar entitled, Healthcare in Retirement, it will feature a live Q&A. You can go to efewebinar.com to register. And as always, you can call 1-833-PLAN-EFE to connect with a planner on any questions you might have. All right. So just a reminder, Kevin asked, between my wife and me, we've got about $2 million in investable assets. What are some strategies that could turn that into a reliable income stream in retirement? Well, isn't that like the million-dollar question, right? Yes. I mean, that is financial planning 101. That is what we do every single day. And I think that, you know, ultimately, it really depends on um, how much you need, how, you know, how much are you going to be taking out of your portfolio and when. But there are really three primary ways 
that I see people typically taking income off of a portfolio. And the first of which is annuitization, which just means you're turning your income stream into an annuity using an insurance company. And they're now paying you out a monthly payment, um, similar to how a pension would work, right? So pro of that is you get a monthly payment that will last typically as long as you and maybe even your spouse live. Con is usually that money is gone. So you get the payment, but you don't have the money. And in most cases, there's not like an inflation protection or any beneficiary um, type arrangement where any of that money would be left to your your kids or grandkids if you uh, passed away early. So there are some pros and cons, but that's one way of creating an income stream. Another way that many people will create income stream is just by taking dividends and interest off of their portfolio. So they look at their portfolio year in, year out and say, okay, well, my my dividends are XYZ, my interest is XYZ, and that's what I'm going to take and live on. You know, pro of that is, okay, well, you're not drawing off of your principal, right? You're only taking sort of what the the earnings are on the portfolio. Um, But the con is that, the main con is that that can go way up and way down depending on the state of the market, right? Dividends can go up and down. Interest, as we have seen recently, you know, could be really low or it could be really high. So it's a very unpredictable way to try to take income off of a portfolio. The third way and the way that we at Edelman Financial Engines mostly prefer is something called a systematic withdrawal plan. And so what that is, is essentially taking either a percentage or a fixed dollar amount out of your portfolio on an ongoing basis, and then increasing it a little bit every single year for inflation. And the pro of this is that you can set the amount of money that you need, and you know how much you need in this pot in order to make that work for you forever, or for as long as you live in theory. And you can take a little bit more every single year. So you can continue to give yourself a raise to keep up with inflation, et cetera. And there's very few cons to this other than, you know, if the market is down a lot, So when we saw like 2008 or in the couple of months, even in 2020, when we had a really big drop in the market, you may have been better off stopping that for a little bit briefly in order to maintain the long-term viability of your portfolio. But the systematic withdrawal strategy also is one whereby you can be a little bit more strategic. For example, if you have stocks and bonds in your portfolio and it's an era of time where the stock market is down and the bond market is up, well, that may be a year in which you're taking more off of the bonds in your portfolio and and using that to produce your systematic withdrawal. And then the next year, if the stock market is back, you might be taking a little bit more from the stock market. So it manages risk and gives your portfolio more long-term longevity and being able to produce that income stream. So lots of different ways that one can do this. We prefer the systematic withdrawal plan, but it's, you know, not really a one-size-fits-all thing. Yeah, I think the, uh, the, the thing to remember, too, is that it's not like you're taking your entire need out of your investments, right? You're going to have social security. Yep. You may have pensions. You may have part-time income or contracting or consulting or whatever else. So what you're talking about is this delta between what you know is coming in and what you know you're going to need. And so, yeah, with the systematic withdrawals, you can be a little bit more tactical and where do I pull and how much do I pull? And you can change that. Obviously, when you get to required minimum distribution age, some of the decision making is out the door, right? Because the Fed say, this is how much we want you to enjoy your your wealth right now. Um, (laughs) You know, please pay us our taxes. So you've got social security, pensions, part-time income, RMDs, all these different things together. And then the other thing that you can do is kind of consider allocating whatever money you have in 
into different places, right? This is what I'm going to live on. This is what we want to leave Junior and Missy. This is what we're going to travel with or home projects. And then you can kind of alternate back and forth. But um, there really is no one size fits all. So whatever rule of thumb you think is out there, this 4% or whatever, just throw it out the window, talk with somebody to figure out what's going to make sense for your dollar stream. Yeah. And it's always best, I think, as you head into that part of your life, if you have somebody working by your side to just help manage this stuff, because it's complicated, it's hard, and it does change year after year. Well, and you only hopefully, right, retire once. And a financial planner, we help people retire day in, day out. So we've looked at all the different strategies. We understand what the risks are to all of these different scenarios. Um, So let us help. That's what we're here for. Okie doke. Let's go to Rosemary. Rosemary has a question about long-term care insurance. And she writes, I am married with three and a half million in investable income and have a good long-term care policy. However, my husband thinks we can self-insure. We are both in good, reasonable health in our late 60s, and our policy is costing almost $7,000 a year today and will likely increase going forward. Can you talk about some of the pros and cons of self-insuring? And I got to say, personally, I'm very interested in this answer. My mother just got a notification from her long-term care policy, which she's had forever. And premiums after going up last year went up again significantly this year. It is, and it's going to keep happening, most likely. Um, I mean, I don't have a crystal ball, but I would guess that um, that's something that will continue for the rest of your mom's life. And I think there are, you know, it's a tricky question here. You know, Rosemary's, you know, her husband is is under the impression that perhaps they can consider self-insuring. I can't answer that because while $3.5 million is a lot of money, you know, whether or not you can self-insure is going to depend on a whole heck of a lot of factors. And assets being one of them, but I think income and health and longevity and family history, all of that is going to play a role when you're thinking about this. I mean, they've crossed one of the major hurdles already, which is just getting long-term care insurance. I mean, you talk about how expensive it is and how it keeps going up in price. Well, it's also virtually impossible to get, I feel like. I mean, I have clients that are turned down for it all the time for some, what I consider to be minor trivial thing. Um, So they've crossed the hurdle of being able to get the long-term care insurance. And now the question is, should we even maintain it given this huge price? And, you know, the average age of somebody going into a long-term care facility is somewhere in their mid-80s. So they don't have all that much longer theoretically, if they're both in their late 60s, to keep paying, right? So maybe they've got another 10 or 15 years using, again, average scenarios to keep paying. So they're talking about maybe another $70,000, $100,000. The average one year in a long-term care facility is going to be significantly more than that. So if either one of them ends up using long-term care, the insurance premiums are going to seem like a very minor part of this as compared to the actual cost of long term care. So it's really, really tricky. Um, I would say before you make a decision to drop long-term care, look at other options, like look at hybrid long-term care policies, which are essentially life insurance policies that have a long-term care rider included on them. They can be a little bit more expensive, perhaps on the front end. However, they give you a little bit of an insurance policy in that if you don't use it, the money that's left may be able to go passed along to beneficiaries, which is unlike a traditional long-term care policy where it's basically 
actually use it or lose it. So pros and cons, you know, I think the pros of keeping it ultimately are that it's a lot less expensive to just pay the premiums than it is to pay for long-term care out of pocket, but it is pretty expensive. So, you know, now you're thinking about, right, can we afford to go without it? And that's a maybe. Well, and the question too is, what is the money supposed to be used for? And if you're counting on or would like to leave an inheritance to family members or charities, then sometimes I would think it makes sense to just keep paying for the insurance so that you know that long-term care costs won't take a huge chunk out of that down the road. Yeah. So what I like people to do is, you know, at least have the conversation with somebody about what a long-term care policy would cost. But then we build that in as a different line item to the goal planning kind of cash flow and retirement. So your your expenses, your living expenses, your living expenses. But then we add in different things. And so if you think about retirement costs from retirement date all the way to the end, it's kind of like you've got this adjustable nozzle and sometimes it's on full spray and then sometimes it's barely a trickle, right? So if you can build those numbers into your cash flow plan and as long as you're not, you know, selling plasma for rent, you know, then it's something to consider because you don't want to be insurance poor with all of this. So the idea is to inflate the different costs differently. You've got living expenses, you've got home projects, travel, we build in long-term care or some sort of assisted living, you know, thing at the end. All of them are going to have different timelines. I think the overarching idea that you can have in your head is don't expect somebody else to take care of you, i.e. kids or grandkids. Have the conversations now, build that cost into the plan now, and just know that it's going to be a lot more expensive than I think that you could ever imagine. Okay, so we've got two questions about emergency funds. Andy, you get a twofer. I'm going to throw them both at you. Jeffrey says, they say, and we, I always, when they say they say, who is they? Well, they say that you should keep from six months to two years of living expenses in an emergency fund. However, in some of the Edelman Financial Engines model portfolios, they only keep 1% in cash. Are these quote-unquote living expenses separate from the monies in the model portfolio under management? So that's question number one. And then Pradeep asks, can a stock brokerage account be considered a part of your emergency fund? Okay. So we'll kind of treat these as two separate issues. Um, Jeffrey Inc., right? So think about, you know, everything that that Jeffrey is going to have. Or Jeffrey, think about everything that you're going to have. You've got investments, right? And so the investments themselves may have some sweep cash or allocated cash inside the investments themselves. But that cash is going to serve a different purpose from, oh my gosh, I need just massive amounts of money and liquidity right now. Where do I pull it from? So the investments are going to have cash, but it may be for short-term trading, it may be for fees, maybe for any number of, of different uses. Then you have this liquid cash, which are bank assets and quote-unquote, you know, home assets or anything that you may have cash in the safe, at, you know, at home or whatever else. Then you've got the home, you've got income and debt, but all of that together comprises Jeffrey Inc., so overall, you can still have that 6 to 12 months, 6 to 24 months worth of emergency liquidity on hand, but don't always think that it's going to be in one place. They are separate. They serve two entirely different purposes. It's good that it's there and you kind of have an accounting of that, but don't think that that's kind of immediately allocated 
towards liquid savings. Now, for the other question. Pradeep. Pradeep. Uh, it depends. So some people are comfortable with what I would call double counting an investment account. Okay. Oh, it's a brokerage. And when the market's going up, I'm the smartest person in the entire world. But then when the market's going down, don't worry, because this is something that I can pull money from if I need it. Right. Some people realize and, and are more comfortable with a more defined separation of the different types of assets. So realize if you're one of the people who are treating a brokerage account as emergency savings, you have to realize that your timelines could be totally different for the use of the money. Okay, normally, you know, investors should think in decades. You know, Wall Street is kind of beating everybody over the head and everybody thinks in quarters, but you have a longer term timeline for investment assets. Okay, so you may be doing XYZ for your brokerage account from an investment perspective, but you may need ABC for timing, you know, for any sort of these emergencies. If you do this, if you are one of the people that wants to treat their brokerage account as an emergency savings account, just be honest with yourself about the risk that you're taking on. So when you see volatility in the, the investments, you have to kind of mentally separate, this is a brokerage account, but also this is a longer term, you know, emergency savings account. And you're going to see different types of volatility with emergency cash that you're probably not ready for. And I would add and maybe take it even further that I think, you know, in general, when we have emergencies in life, you can't just say, well, I'm, I can wait a month or two until the market recovers to, you know, pay this medical bill or to do this car repair, right? So the problem is in that emergency fund really needs to be immediately accessible and have no downside, right? Because you need to know what is my bottom line emergency fund? What does that need to be? And if your bottom line emergency fund is six months, that should be in the bank, in savings, in a CD, in a money market, somewhere where there is zero volatility. Because emergencies are not always a car repair or, you know, an emergency can also come up because you lose your job. In a recession, people are more apt to lose their jobs. And that may be a period of time where now you need to draw on your quote unquote emergency funds to help you pay your mortgage or your car payment or your cell phone bill or whatever it is just to live, just to get by. And if we're in a recession and the market's also down 30 or 40%, I mean, let's hope that never happens again. But if it happened, now you're talking about your emergency fund really kind of now disappearing, right? Slowly being used up and maybe going away. So I would say keep your emergency funds in something that's liquid, accessible, and has no downside risk. Now, the investment fund, it's going to be a backup. You know, if you use up the emergency fund and things go haywire, it's there and you know it is, but it shouldn't be your first line of defense. A big thank you to Andy Smith and Isabel Barrow for being here. That's all the time that we've got for this show. If you've got questions about any of the topics that we covered today or anything really related to financial planning, give the folks at Edelman Financial Engines a call at 833-PLAN-EFE. Talk with one of the planners like Andy or Isabel who can help you make the best financial decisions for you and for your family. And just one more time, don't forget. On Tuesday, October 10th, Edelman Financial Engines will be hosting a webinar entitled Healthcare in Retirement. It'll feature a live Q&A. You can go to efewebinar.com to register and be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast wherever you stream your favorite podcasts or just visit everydaywealth.com. All of our episodes are available there to you. Thanks again, and we'll talk soon. You've been listening to Edelman Financial Engine's Everyday Wealth with Gene Chatsky. 
Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. If you've missed an episode or are interested in additional personal finance topics, be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast. Our podcast library offers helpful insights on topics such as tax-efficient portfolios, retirement withdrawal strategies, investing, and financial planning, to name just a few. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com, or find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.